The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop, and Roger Morehouse, who's standing in for Saul David, who's still paddling a canoe around the Scottish coast for charity. Saul, we salute you. Well, the last week has seen a few military developments of note in Ukraine, but also some interesting and worrying domestic developments in Russia, that is, if you're Vladimir Putin. We'll take a look at what significance they might have for the war in Ukraine. But the first thing to look at, I think, is those casualty figures for the Russian side, uh, which have emerged. What can you tell us about those, Roger? Yes, uh, both sides guard their casualty figures very closely, of course. But the Ukrainian general staff has kept a running total of Russian losses, which is updated daily and en encompasses aircraft, APCs and, of, of course, men. Um, now, those of you that are on Twitter might have seen the graphic that they produce each day showing those figures. But this week, their estimate for Russian losses, dead and injured, topped 300,000. Now, you might remember just a couple of months ago that the Biden administration gave an estimate of 500,000 dead and wounded for both sides. So it's quite plausible that Russia can have clocked up 300,000 on its own, given that offensive operations are always more costly in lives than defensive ones. And Russia certainly doesn't have much of a tradition of seeking to minimise military casualties. Yeah, that's right, isn't it, Roger? I think one of our listeners sent in something, a rather interesting uh, reference to a Solzhenitsyn novel. Was that August 1914, was it? Yeah, August 1914. And there's a lovely quote from that, which I'll, which I'll just read out, which talked about the Russians back then in August 1914. Quote, throwing untrained troops direct into action without a pause for acclimatization, thrusting them into the front line wherever there was a breach without considering whether these attempts were strategically justified. I mean, that could almost be talking about 2023 in Ukraine. I remember from a few years ago now interviewing a, a Wehrmacht veteran from the Eastern Front, and he told me then that you know, back in, that must have been 1943 that he was talking about. He talked about facing so many waves of Red Army soldiers that the barrel of their machine gun glowed red hot. I mean, which is kind of unthinkable. 
all of which confirms the view that, uh, that there's no idea of minimizing military casualties. It's never been part of the Kremlin's playbook, and that goes right back to Peter the Great as well. Nonetheless, this is quite a remarkable figure for 18 months of warfare. Now, to clarify, that 300,000 figure would equate to perhaps 75,000 dead, given that a working ratio of dead to wounded in modern warfare tends to be about one to three. And 75,000 dead is more than the US Army lost in Vietnam in a decade of conflict. So it is a substantial figure. And we have to wonder, I think, Patrick, at which point this all starts to have an impact on the Russian home front. Well, that's the question we've been asking ourselves from the very early days, uh, isn't it, Roger? I mean, we always reference the factors that, that do actually suppress popular discontent, at least in the medium term. And of course, the foremost among those is the iron grip that the regime has on the Russian media, especially television and broadcast, which you know keeps pumping out this message that Russia's winning, the Ukrainians are all Nazis, etc., etc. I'm a bit skeptical about how all-pervading that is. You know, we've been told by experts on the pod that there are many ways of getting around the state media and getting access to other information. And of course, Social media still operates, and I would have thought that that's the preferred means of receiving and transmitting information among the young, who are the ones actually fighting this war, mostly affected by the outcomes of it. I think the lesson we've learned is that conventional media is mostly consumed by the old. But I think there is another consideration here. The Putin regime has has been getting its manpower for this war as far as possible from the non-Russian peripheries of the Russian Federation. And consequently, it's been people like the Buryats, the Dagestanis, who've disproportionately borne the brunt of those losses um, and populations in the big urban centers of Western Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, have been relatively lightly affected. Now, that's for the obvious reason that that's there. Your discontent there is going to have a much greater political effect on the center than it will coming from the periphery. So the logic here is that Buryat and Dagestani lives can be sacrificed uh, without too much uh, fear of the consequences, uh, whereas you know large-scale deaths in Petersburg and Moscow would have serious political consequences. I'd also point out that, that this is not actually a kind of foolproof uh, strategy because the Dagestanis are, are mainly Muslims, like the Chechens are also heavily engaged in this war. And I think the Kremlin has to tread carefully here because there is a danger, I would have thought, that discontent with a war from these outlying regions, uh, Muslim regions, might translate into Islamic extremism of a sort that has flared up from time to time in Russia. Yeah, it's interesting on that, Patrick, that the, this week that we saw those, those rather ugly scenes at um, Makhachkala Airport, which is the, the capital of Dagestan, where there was you know, what seemed to all intents and purposes to be a, uh, an old-fashioned pogrom, where a, a mob sort of ran through the airport and onto the, out onto the uh, tarmac looking for Jews to uh, persecute. This was a flight coming in from Tel Aviv, I believe, isn't it? Is that, is that's that, right. That's right. And they were searching for people who had Israeli passports, etc. Now, now, it's interesting that a NATO source, so the, the head of NATO strategic communications, said that that outrage at Makhachkala Airport appears to be a sort of manifestation, as they put it, a quote, 
the radicalization of Russian society as a result of the war in Ukraine. So, you know, they're making that link very, very distinctly that this is related to the war in Ukraine and that and the, the sort of weight of Russian propaganda, which is portraying, you know, the West and Ukraine and to a large extent Israel all as one sort of mass as in the West and a hostile West. So that's another one. That's another sort of, uh, you know, complex element, as you said, you know, tying in with that rather febrile atmosphere that we've got with what's going on in Gaza at the moment. All of this is is looking something like a sort of tinderbox a little bit. So we'll have to wait and see how long that uh, demographic sleight of hand will continue to work for Putin in in using you know those sort of largely Muslim populations on the fringes of the Russian population essentially as his cannon fodder. It might that policy might yet come back to bite him. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll come back to that question of how uh, Russia is presenting all this, all this turmoil a bit later on. But just to get back to the manpower challenge. Now, this is something that's been going on for a while. Clearly, they're not in the business at the moment of a sort of round of mobilizations for those political uh, reasons we mentioned above. But they clearly are scraping the barrel because we talked last week about these Storm Z units um, of prison inmates. Now, this is exactly what uh, Prigozhin was doing, recruiting uh, from Russian jails in order to get men for his Wagner units. But um, the process seemed to be suspended, but now they've gone back to it clearly because uh, out of desperation, I would say. And there's a Russian human rights organization who's estimated that as many as 100,000 prisoners or former prisoners are now fighting in Ukraine. And these uh, Storm Z units are treated even worse than, than your average recruit. Russian military bloggers refer to them as being you know, the main element in so-called meat assaults, essentially mass attacks of unsupported infantry of the sort that Solzhenitsyn would recognize, uh, which result, thanks to the kind of almost complete absence of any training, in losses uh, of as much as 70%. So we'll have to see how much further this can go in the coming weeks and months and how uh, this might finally filter through to having an impact on on morale on the home front and, by extension, support for Putin. Indeed. Now, let's look at um, developments on the front line this week. And to a large extent, it's been a, a situation of as you were. But we have seen a, a concerted Russian push in eastern Ukraine in the area of Kupiansk, east of, east of Kharkiv, as well as at Bakhmut and Avdiivka, which we mentioned last week, which are further south in Donetsk Oblast. And all of that is being interpreted as an effort not only to draw uh, Ukrainian forces away from the offensive at uh, Robotinia and the bridgehead further down the, the, the Dnipro near Kherson, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but also the added intention of, of trying to secure Russian control of all of Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. And perhaps that's uh, an effort to sort of secure those territories or as much territory as possible prior to the winter. It, it looks that Avtiivka particular looks very much like Bakhmut, doesn't it, uh, earlier in the year, Roger, uh, in which they're, you know, they're willing to commit large amounts of troops and hardware in a protracted battle. You can ascribe some sort of military purpose to this, but I think stepping back, it's pretty insignificant. And my reading of it, which I'm pleased to see that um, Phil O'Brien, who we often quote on the podcast, goes along with, is that it's really all about politics. It's all about being able to point to some sort of military success before military activity slows down for the winter in the run-up to the 
Russian presidential elections, which are due to be held, I believe, in March. And of course, for the same reason, um, that makes the Ukrainians all the more determined to hang on to Avdivka in order to deny Putin this success. So I think this is going to go on for a while yet. So what else has caught your eye then, Roger? Well, I'm very intrigued, as I just mentioned, I'm very intrigued by this bridgehead that the Ukrainians appear to have secured on the left bank of the Dnipro, so effectively the south bank of the Dnipro, east of Kherson, and the little town is called Krinky, which sounds very cute. I'm sure it's not very cute now, but it, it's only a small bridgehead at present, but it, I think it maybe has the potential to enable Ukrainian forces to bring men and material across the Dnipro in that area. And of course, you know, large rivers like the Dnipro do do make for a, a substantial barrier in, in in warfare like this. And it's and it's very difficult very often. You think you think of the Americans crossing the Rhine back in in uh, 1945 and 44 with the um, uh, Market Garden and the rest of it. This, these were substantial logistical and military obstacles. And it's the same thing with the Dnipro. So I think this is a significant development potentially one Russian military blogger has talked about Ukrainian forces crossing to that bridgehead in groups of about 50 to 70 people in three directions. So it is small at the moment, but it's, so it's only a couple of kilometers across, but it does at least, I think, have the potential to grow. And indeed, we can see, you know, already, supposedly, this has brought about the sacking of the Russian commander in the Kherson region, Colonel General Oleg Makarevich. And the question is, I suppose, whether that bridgehead is just a feint, i.e., you know, designed to sort of distract the Russian command, to draw Russian troops away from Robotinye, where that main advance appears to have, to have stalled somewhat in the Russian minefields. Or are we seeing another front being opened in that southern flank? Time will tell. Now, there's something, Roger, that you, um, you were looking at about this. Uh, I, I haven't actually gone into it in any detail, but what do you make of this um, visit by Hamas representatives to Moscow last week? It seems like a sort of, you know, the timing seems a bit weird, doesn't it? What, what do you think was going on there? Yeah, I mean, th there have been contacts between Hamas representatives and Moscow. And, and of course, that sort of what appears to be some sort of unholy triumvirate of Moscow, Iran and Hamas appears to be uh, in the offing at the moment. But yeah, so the, the Hamas representatives in Moscow this week for talks uh, with the deputy foreign minister makes, I think, for uncomfortable viewing for many of us on the outside. It was often said, I think, admittedly before the debacle of the invasion of Ukraine, that Putin was was uh, adept at playing what we called three-dimensional chess with sort of numerous pieces in the game that uh, his Western opponents had barely realised even existed on the chessboard. And that reputation as a sort of nefarious schemer has, has rather taken something of a battering uh, over the last 18 months with the sort of sheer incompetence of the Ukraine operation. But it's certainly clear that what Putin is aiming for in strategic terms is a sort of multifaceted challenge to the existing security infrastructure and the and the Western-led rules-governed uh, status quo. So, to a large extent, bearing that in mind as as his sort of guiding ethos, what would be better than reigniting the the, the conflict in the Middle East? And let's not forget that Russian forces are already very active in the Middle East in in propping up Bashar al-Assad in Syria in his civil war, where they've committed numerous atrocities, of course. So. You know, we should take Russian exhortations about restoring peace in the Middle East very much with a pinch of salt, I think. Anyway, although it's very unlikely that Putin was involved in 
instigating, or I, I would say even green lighting the Hamas attack on 7th of October. That dubious honour appears to have fallen to Iran, but it's certainly not beyond the bounds of reason to suggest that he would be happy to exploit the conflict in Gaza as a distraction for the hated West, as a moral dilemma for Western policymakers, and as a spur to the sort of domestic unrest that we've seen the last few weeks on the on the streets of Western capitals. So in that sense, what's going on in Gaza from, from Putin's perspective is win-win, I would suggest. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly plenty of propaganda capital to be had from the war in Gaza, as several of our listeners have, have pointed out uh, in emails they sent uh, earlier in the week. I mean, the mass civilian casualties that are being inflicted on the Gazans by the Israelis without inviting outright condemnation from the from the US and the UK, I mean, that does open the way for a charge of double standards, given the West's very vocal denunciations of Russian targeting of civilian infrastructure, etc. in Ukraine. So from a a Russian point of view, that will help undermine the good versus bad narrative, which is how the West and how, you know, admittedly, we on this podcast broadly see the Ukrainian war. But actually, I mean, you say that, that Putin's reputation has taken a bit of a battering as, as being this, you know, uh, this masked three-dimensional chess grandmaster. I mean, he does actually manage to have it both ways in this one, doesn't he? I mean, with reference to those uh, anti-Jewish riots in in Dagestan, the authorities actually moved pretty quickly to face down the mob and denounce the violence and and make declarations to, you know, Russia's um, commitment to tolerance and inclusivity and all the rest of it. Um, And whatever you say about Putin, I think one thing, uh, one charge that you cannot lay against him is that he's an anti-Semite. That was a very interesting message we got from a listener about his early days in Petersburg when he was befriended by a Jewish family and he apparently never forgot that and has warm feelings towards the Jewish people. And he certainly had warm relations with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, over the years. So he's managed to present himself as a defender of human rights while at the same time seizing on the Gaza war to position himself at the head of a a multi-polar world order or would-be world order, which includes China, the global south, that's seeking to combat the evil actions of the US and its satellites. And, and he's been very vocal about this. The other day, he characterized the situation, as, or the US rather, a spider, the root of this evil, i.e. the wars, not just in Gaza, but also in Ukraine, which is trying to you, entangle the whole planet in its web. And of course, there'll be many in the world who are inclined to believe him. There are, I think, like a lot of these utterances that you get from the Kremlin, there's a degree of projection in that as well, where they sort of tend to project what the, the way they see the world and what they're doing. And uh, I think there's a degree in which that he views those conflicts as being linked and as being, as I said, I think, broadly beneficial to his cause. So uh, again, watch that space. Okay, that's it for part one. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering or at least trying to answer your questions. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. 
Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. New year, new credit scores. Chime makes it easier to build credit by using your own money to make on-time payments with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a qualifying direct deposit. There's no annual fee or credit check required when applying. Get started at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. Welcome back. Uh, I'm just going to deal with some of the questions that have been sent in. The first one comes from Andrew in Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. He says, great podcast. I listen to every episode as I have a Ukrainian wife and family in Ukraine and desire to understand developments with the war. It seems like it's impossible for Ukraine to push Russia completely out of its lands and that significant military aid to Ukraine is finite. Therefore, what is the most likely end to the conflict? Ukraine conceding lands? And secondarily, he says, do you think it is plausible that Ukraine would seek to provide its own security guarantees by developing nuclear weapons? Doesn't Ukraine have most of the resources, technology, and know-how to do so due to their former Soviet-era nuclear capabilities? What do you think of that, Patrick? Andrew, in answer to the first question, um, I don't think we can really say at this point how this is going to finish up? Will it require Ukraine to give up some sort of land for for peace and security? We don't know. What, what I would say is that Zelensky isn't, or doesn't appear to be, under any great pressure to do this. Now we had um, a message last week from someone who was travelling around to the east of Ukraine, saying that Zelensky's popularity was uh, not quite as solid there as it as it might seem in uh, the capital. And of course, I think this is relevant because you know it's Zelensky who's saying we're not going to give up an inch of of land, uh, including Crimea. So I think Zelensky's popularity is a key to uh, whether it would be politically possible to do a deal that, that involved actually ceding uh, what is now Ukrainian sovereign territory. Now we've got a message here from Askel Krushelnitsky, who listeners will know often contributes uh, great insights to the podcast. He's an old friend of mine. Um, we've interviewed him on the podcast. And he returned to this subject and said, Zelensky's chances in a future election, there was also talk of why haven't they had an election to kind of give a mandate, if you like, for, for Zelensky's war position. He reckons that th his chances in a future election would be very 
high. And the most recent polls indicate his popularity hasn't really suffered at all in the war. It was actually went down a bit before the war in 2020 and 2021, but it's now higher than when he was elected with 73% of the vote, it must be said, back in 2019. Askel goes on to say that he thinks most Ukrainians believe elections would not be a good idea while the war is still going on. But there are all sorts of uh, considerations, not least, how do you ensure the views of Ukrainians in Russian-occupied areas of the country, or indeed the millions of Ukrainians who are internally displaced or, or refugees abroad, how would they be taken into account? Now, to move on to the nuclear question, Just a bit of background here. When the um, Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine got its independence, it was uh, briefly the third largest nuclear power on Earth due to the fact that it hosted vast amounts of the USSR's nuclear arsenal. However, newly independent uh, Ukraine decided to give up these weapons for two reasons. One was the support of the West and particularly the United States sort of depended on it and they needed all the help they could get as they started out. And so a couple of years later, they signed up to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and uh, they remain a signatory to that. Was this a mistake? Well, some people have said that if they'd kept their nukes, uh, this might have deterred Russia from future aggression. I think that's unlikely. Uh, The main weapons that they had on their territory were long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles, which were targeted on, on the US. So they couldn't actually hit anything in Russia except the the very far east of Russia. And in any case, Moscow retained the codes, the the actual codes to arm and fire these weapons, which the Ukrainians admitted they were unable to circumvent. Looking at what people have said about it in, in recent months in Ukraine, I don't think there's any great appetite for regaining that nuclear capability Uh, except among a few uh, Ukrainian far-right political parties. But as you point out, Andrew, they they do retain a great deal of nuclear know-how as well, and they've also got four nuclear power plants. So there's a potential there for development of nuclear weapons as a security guarantee after the war. However, I don't think the US will be keen on them uh, joining the nuclear club, and I doubt that it's a realistic ambition in the near future. No, would that not mean that they would fall foul of the sort of non-proliferation rules and so on? And I think in the you know the constellation that we're in, where Ukraine, what 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 has to a large extent provoked this Russian attack is Ukraine's sort of pivot westward and Ukraine's ambition to join you know Western organisations, NATO, EU, and so on, and to in a sense jettison the Russian model and adopt a sort of Western rules-based model. So bearing all of that in mind, I think it's quite unlikely that Ukraine would break those rules by then seeking to develop their own uh, nuclear capability. So on that point, I think that's probably unlikely. The first question is an interesting one. It is, I mean, absolutely a question for for Ukraine, for for Zelensky and for the Ukrainians themselves. And I, I fully appreciate that they're very often very touchy about you know, the outside world telling them what to do. So I'm absolutely not doing that. But I think, you know, from the perspective of now, it does look, you know, the way that Ukrainian counteroffensive has seemingly sort of ground a little bit to a halt, we can still hope that it will make some progress, but it doesn't appear to be making it at the moment. It does look like that sort of liberation of all, all the Ukrainian lands uh, from Russian occupation perhaps seems a bit distant from the perspective of now. 
we could hope for a sort of a collapse, you know, due to the Ukrainians exacerbating Russian supply problems as they did with the liberation of Kherson last year. So we we can hope that that might happen, but it seems a bit distant at the moment. So maybe yes, the end of this conflict might come with the cession of some territory. I think you know that's that I think is probably realistic. The key thing for Ukraine would be that if that is the road that they go down, they have to make you know extract the highest possible price. And by that I mean they would have to have agreement with Russia that that they can join NATO. Because otherwise if you cede territory and you and you have some sort of ceasefire and some sort of peace agreement without that security umbrella of NATO, I would fear that you're just inviting another Russian invasion five years down the line once they've uh, rearmed and re-equipped their forces. So that would, to my mind, would be the a solution if they are to cede territory to make sure that it's sold for the, uh, for the highest possible price. And by that, I would mean NATO mem- membership. Absolutely. I'm just going to read this out from Oliver, who says, earlier this year, you interviewed Richard Lofthaus about Car for Ukraine. Listeners might remember this is a fascinating interview we had with Richard, who's been very active in getting uh, vehicles out to Ukraine for use, all sorts of multiple uses. And Oliver uh, was inspired by this to go out himself. He said, I've just got back from Lviv, having donated three pickup trucks, 250 CAT tourniquets, that's combat application tourniquets, you know, straps that you you apply to a wounded limb in the battlefield, 50 chest compresses and warm weather gear. Now, what he was struck by was that it was very clear to him that there's an acute and continuing need for logistics. And we may think, well, isn't all this being supplied by the Americans, etc.? But no, individuals can make a huge contribution to the Ukrainian war effort. He says, particularly trucks to get supplies to the front line, as well as moving casualties off. The medics we donated the tourniquets and chest compresses to were extremely grateful, as they're always in short supply, but they urgently need more. And at £25 a piece, they aren't cheap. So he's asking us, could you encourage your listeners to donate to Car for Ukraine or do what we did and take a convoy over. Oliver went with his 16-year-old and a couple of mates who drove the other two trucks. And he said it was a very, very rewarding trip. They got a very, very warm reception from everyone and a gratitude all round. He's planning to go out again in the spring and is looking forward to that. Uh, now, just going to go on to Agnes. This Readers love this question of pronunciation. We've got one from... <laughs> Agnieszka from um, Poland, and she set us a challenge uh, when uh, saying, okay, um, if you're really going to be serious about uh, pronouncing things properly, how would you pronounce the name of the Polish town, which is spelt R-Z-E-S-Z-O-W, which is a major hub for dissemination of material help for Ukraine? Well, we know that because we went through uh, this place uh, <laughs> on the on the way to uh, Ukraine in August. So she says, I'd like to hear that word from your mouth. Let's have some fun. I'm going to start off, Roger. I would say it's Zhezhov. Uh, yeah, Agnieszka has kind of chosen the wrong week, unfortunately, because, um, you know, I, I have a lot of ties with Poland. I go to Poland. I've been to Zeshov, uh, as it as it's pronounced. So <laughs> unfortunately, yes, this is one that um, that would trip a lot of people up. But um, it hasn't tripped us up, Patrick. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. Zeshov. Yeah, I quite like that little flourish, flourish of the Zeshov. 
Jezhov. Yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> but several people have said, come back to Andrew from Hong Kong last week. Do you remember? He said, no, the, the good, he's a linguist himself, Andrew, so he's not telling us this from a position of ignorance, but he's saying, I think the good old tradition of, of the Brits just saying it the way they like it and sticking to a recognizable form of a place name is the way to go. But a lot of people have come back and said, no, there's more to it than that, Andrew. And uh, they're saying that it's, it's, very, it's political. You know, the Russian, the Russian calling Kiev, Kiev, as in chicken Kiev, uh, is not a good idea because that's how the Russians would like you to say it because historically uh, they're part of their sort of in, imperial cultural campaign to Russify these places was to give them these names that the locals didn't use. So Ghana says you've got to carry on saying Kiev, not Kiev, Kharkiv, not Kharkov, Lviv, not Lvov, etc., etc. What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I, under, I understand, you know, wholeheartedly the significance of all of this um, for those involved. And it, it is part of, you know, the growing self-confidence and sort of self-image of, of Ukrainians to, you know, call those places the way they call them and to insist that that's done outside. And I absolutely applaud it. The only thing I would say by way of sort of, in a, in a way, exculpating, excusing my fellow Brits and others for their ignorance is that when I think the majority of people, you know, maybe accidentally say Kiev instead of Kiev, I think that's more out of ignorance and habit rather than, you know, there's no political content to that. So, you know, we're trying and uh, I would just say sort of, you know, be patient. Uh, these things unfortunately do take time to sort of percolate through. Um, but it's not always a sort of, it's not always politically meant or politically loaded. Uh, we have a question from Kevin Curry who says, can you guys give an update on the Western equipped and Western trained brigades? Have they been committed to the fight? Are they still in reserve? And what about losses? Well, hi, Kevin. Uh, this is a reference, of course, to the nine uh, brigades equipped and largely trained by the by the Americans and their NATO allies, including us, uh, the Brits, about 36,000 men in all. The training they've got is very much, you know, in the NATO, the American way of warfare using combined arms, synchronized tactics and um, decentralizing, if you like, decision making, giving uh, senior NCOs, giving senior non-commissioned officers command powers that uh, they certainly wouldn't have in the Russian army. So it's basically trying to give them what uh, NATO thinks, what the Americans think is a superior battle doctrine, the opposite of the kind of very rigidly centralized command structure that is the Russian way of going to war. Well, to answer the question, my impression is that they haven't been used, certainly not to the full, not yet, because they haven't actually needed to be uh, put into the forefront of the battle. And there'll be a great reluctance on the Ukrainian side, I would say, to use them until they're going to be at their most effective. Um, these are resources that may not be replenished, so they're going to be husbanding them very carefully. Now, the counteroffensive has almost certainly wound down for the winter, so I think they're going to be kept in reserve until the fighting begins in earnest in 2024. Again, I mean, just looking, sifting through battlefield reports, all the rest of it, I can't see any evidence that they've actually put these you know, main battle tanks, all the rest of it, into the field in any numbers, partly because that there hasn't actually the kind of fighting that's been going on that we've been talking about 
today hasn't actually required them. It's 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 very much kind of small units, you know, grim little infantry battles uh, where they wouldn't actually have a decisive effect. I think the moment will come when there is a breakthrough, a significant breakthrough in the Russian defences, and that may not be for another six months now, I would say. Uh, we had an email from one of our listeners, Evan Morris, and he very kindly, he's written a book which is called The Tiger's Revenge, which is about Operation Jaywick, which was a commando raid carried out on uh, Singapore Harbour in 1943, which I'll be very honest, I hadn't heard of before. The Tiger's Revenge, the story of a largely unknown and most daring raid of World War II. Now, Evan has very kindly offered to donate uh, all proceeds from the book for the first six months of sales to the SSAFA, which is the uh, the Armed Forces Charity, which is the same charity that Saul is currently paddling in the cold and stormy waters of uh, the west of Scotland in support of. So that's very kind of him. So we do, um, hence the plug, we don't usually do book plugs, but we will plug this one for, it's for, for a very good cause. So it's uh, Evan Morris, and it's called The Tiger's Revenge about Operation Jaywick, uh, all for a good cause. Thank you, Evan. Well, that's a new one on me, and that's an incredibly generous uh, offer, Evan. I shall be buying the book myself, and thank you very much for that. And I'm sure the charity will be absolutely delighted to hear about your kind offer. Okay, that's it for us for this week. Do join us on Wednesday when we'll be looking again at developments in Gaza, and again on Friday when we'll be returning to Ukraine. Goodbye. Goodbye.